Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. So you know the routine today. Come on, what's the routine? Hurry the kids up, wear nice clothes, get to church. After church is done, go to eat at somebody's house or do something, an event for the kids. That's your routine. My routine is, you know, make sure the church looks clean, um, wear nicer clothes, maybe wear a suit, to which some of you reply, you look nice in a suit. To <laughs> I'm not sure how I should take that. But then I reply, don't get used to it, okay? <laughs> but but we, we run the risk of, of running into a problem. And what is that problem? The problem is to look at the most important human event, the most important event that God graced humanity with, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as commonplace or routine. And that becomes really dangerous because Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead. You know, this is important, this we know. And just to give you, well, the title of today's message is, When Does It Become Real to You? You know, for me, I teach the Bible, so it's a lifestyle. Every week, Sundays, Wednesdays, God takes me through my life. He takes me through the scripture. He takes me through lessons. Some of those lessons I don't particularly enjoy, but he does them anyway. And then there's sometimes you come close to a situation where you think about your own mortality, and you, it becomes even more real than it was just going through your life as a believer. That event actually happened to me three weeks ago. I went for a foot surgery. That's why I'm wearing sneakers. So three weeks, and this was a miracle. I had the whole children's ministry praying for me. So the doctor takes x-rays, and three weeks later, he goes, I don't even see where I... They, they broke the biggest bone in half, shaved it down, wedged... I know some of you are getting squeamish. I apologize, but... And put it back together. And he goes, three weeks. He goes, I can't even see the lines in the x-ray. He goes, this really is amazing. So I, of course, give a lot of kudos to the children praying. But So I go into this situation, and I, I, I'm in this waiting room, and, and they're getting ready to put me under. And basically, they're making sure I'm comfortable and asking me all kinds of questions. And, you know, do you want your wife to come into here? And I said... I said, listen, I'm going to be here for a while. I sent her across the street to get something to eat. She's okay, leave her alone. And they keep, you know, taking my blood pressure, asking me all these questions. And they keep, you know, I guess they're used to, my blood pressure was really low, and I really wasn't nervous at all. And sometimes when somebody, and they were really wonderful, <laughs> but when somebody pushes an issue, you start to now think of things. <laughs> so I'm signing all these forms, you could die, you could have a heart attack, <laughs> you know. I get a, a list of 10 drugs that they pump through my system. I'm like, wow, I thought it was one or two. I think they were going to start me in twilight, move me to general. Um, so there are you know, all these cautions. And at this point, I've had a few surgeries. I just, don't, I just sign it. I probably shouldn't. But I just wanted to get the thing over with. Um, but So in a moment, I actually, I, I really wasn't nervous. I've got to be honest with you. I just look up, and I'm like, I start to pray. And then they, the doors open, and they look in and see me looking up. My mouth is moving, and they're wondering, who gave him the medication? You know, it's, it's too soon. <laughs> but, but it was kind of funny because, you know, God and I have this really awesome relationship. 
He saved me, so I promise to serve him all the days of my life. And the agreement is, if you want me to serve you all the days of my life, you've got to keep me on my feet. You know, so, so that's our little unwritten uh, agreement. But it was cool because I just looked up and I said, I, I snickered because I'm like, all right, Resurrection Sunday's coming up. So I'm going to wake up in, two, in one or two places. I'm either going to be back here where I have to hop along for a while and be in a cast and a boot, which is okay for my family and my church, uh, or I wake up in glory. I wake up in heaven. And I knew that. And it wasn't even a thought. It was just assumed. So, and I just went in there. I'm joking with the staff. You know, you always want to be nice to the anesthesiologist, okay? <laughs> I mean, they, they juice you up, put you down, pick you back. I mean, so I was extremely nice to her. We had some really lovely conversation. I was talking about the Lord in the church. But Christ is real to me. I have a walk with him. But in moments like that, it's even more real. You know what I'm saying? And that's why I want to kind of walk us through. And I want to show us, I want to like, this is not going to be a typical message that you might expect, but what I really want to do is I want to walk you through this doctrine of the resurrection because it's not something somebody made up. And you can see church doctrines over the years, over the millennia, stuff gets made up and you're like, where'd that come from? It's not in the scripture. This is fundamental. This is a non-negotiable tenet of Christianity. What I want to do is I really want to walk you through quickly through the Old Testament and then go to one of Jesus's uh, primary teachings about the afterlife because there's a lot here. See, we were supposed to live forever and when sin entered the world, death entered the world and death through sin, really a downer. But God has a solution for everything because he loves his children. When we sin, what's the solution? Atonement for that sin. When we are estranged or separated from God, what's his solution? Restoration. See, God's the great fixer because he loves us that much. When we, when we die because of our own sin, his answer to that is resurrection. Isn't that amazing? You can't stump God. No matter what the problem is, he's got an immediate answer to it if we would have it. So I'm going to kind of go through the Old Testament because through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they spoke about the resurrection. And some people are like, really? In the Old Testament? I love to walk my Jewish friends through this. They're like blown away. I mean, this is, this is as real as it gets. So I'm going to start with Psalm 1610. It's a mictum of David, written roughly 1000 BC. And he says this. I'm just, these are just one-liners, so I'm just going to go through them. And then when we go through the larger scriptures, we'll have it up. But Psalm 1610, David says, Speaking to God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Sheol in the Old Testament was the grave. It was the realm of the dead. So what does that mean? Maybe he didn't fully understand, but that was a resurrection. And then he continues, nor will you allow your Holy One. That was another way of saying the Messiah. This is before it happened, before Jesus even came to the earth. He said, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption or decaying from the death process. So resurrection for David and resurrection for Jesus. Daniel 12, 2. He says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth. Now, I don't know if that's where we get the expression in our vernacular, somebody took a dirt nap, okay? But this is how they spoke. And they had ways of saying things that we don't normally say. So if you sleep in the dust of the earth, that's a nice way of saying that you died. We say passed away, or what is it? The animals go over Rainbow Bridge or something like that. But we, we make stuff up. But basically, people try to make death sound a little bit better. 
So those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. It's resurrection. Some to everlasting life and, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's going to be judgment after that. Judgment for the righteous in a good way and then judgment for those that have not made their peace with God. They have not been covered under the blood of Christ. Uh, Psalm 17.15 As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. So here's a scripture, again in the Old Testament, that says basically it's going to be a different relationship between us and God after we die and after He revives us. Um, our, even our bodies won't be based on the atomic structure. You know, we look at our skin, it looks really nice, but if you really take some cells and, and you take a, you know, an electron microscope, you see that we're based on an atomic structure. And it's a very frail structure, I mind you, if you, if you study uh, f- uh, chemistry and physics. It's going to be different. Psalm 49, 7 through 8, the sons of Korah say this, None of them by any means can redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of the souls is costly and it shall cease forever. So knowing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the soul is priceless. The soul is priceless. You can't buy a person's soul. Religion will tell you if you do this and do that, you can get them out of this place and get them into heaven. You can't do anything because the soul is priceless and we cannot have an effect even on those that we love. It, very strangely enough, you see every so often a person who's mis, misguided but very religious tries to crucify themselves. All they're doing is hurting themselves because not only can they not die for themselves, but they can't die for anybody else. Only Christ could have done that. The sons of Korah continue in this same psalm in verse 15, and he says, but God will redeem my soul. So first part is man can't redeem the soul. The second part is, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. This is resurrection. For he shall receive me. Psalm 71.20, a prayer of the aged. You have shown me great and severe troubles, but you shall revive me again. I'll be revived again. Job 19.25-27. Did you know that there was so much prophecy about life after death in the Old Testament? You know, a lot of times Christians don't read the Old Testament as well. There's something building up to what Jesus did, okay? Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed. You know, back then, and even today, or before the embalming process, the first thing that you would see, and you knew somebody was dying, was the condition of their skin. Everything starts to break down immediately upon cessation of the heartbeat and the brain waves, okay? He says, after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh, this is strange because he just talked about his skin being destroyed, that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another how my heart yearns within me. Job went through a lot of trials in his life. He was looking for the day that he would be perfected. He was looking for that, that resurrection. Hosea 13, 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. The grave has power. Right now, everybody dies. We understand that Christ will again interrupt human history and call many of us to heaven or the ones who are believers in Christ. But we know that, as the saying goes, death and taxes, that's a given. There's power in the grave because it comes for everyone. Even this... um, 
personification, the Grim Reaper. I, I should have looked it up and saw where it came from, but this p picture of death, when he comes for, for you, you can't escape. He's just too powerful. Okay? He says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, where is your sting? O grave, O Hades, where is your victory? The Apostle Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 15 in the resurrection chapter. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise, awake, and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. And last one, and there's so many, I don't want to spend the whole time going through Old Testament pictures of re resurrection, but 1 Kings 17, which I taught several Wednesday nights ago, 1 Kings 17, the prophet Elijah, who was just a man, he was just a person like you and I, he had such compassion on this widow. She was poor, and all she had was her son, and her son dies. And he begs God, and he stretches himself out on the body three times, and God brings the boy back to life. Amazing. Very rarely seen to that magnitude. And then, of course, when Jesus comes, He's doing resurrections all the time. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. Okay, the resurrection was real to those living in the Old Testament. And brothers and sisters, it needs to be real to us. I want to go to Luke 16. This is what I would call an interdispensational or intertestamental period. In other words, in English, that means that when Jesus came, the new covenant was coming. He was bringing a new agreement with him. He was bringing the Holy Spirit with him. And there was this kind of interim period that was going on. And Jesus explains what happens after we die. And in Luke 16, I'll read it and then I'll just make some brief points on it. Verse 19, this is, some say it's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but he does name Lazarus in this, and I believe that this is a real account. Bible scholars differ on that. In verse 19 it says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. This was a place that Abraham was. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides this, all of this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, a big chasm, a big separation, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Then he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Check this out. Last verse. He says to them, He says to him, 
If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one, though one rise from the dead. Pretty fantastic. Now, what can we learn from this? I'm going to say this to my brothers and sisters, Christians. Don't let the culture poison the Scripture. This doesn't mean that rich people are bad and poor people are all good. Bernie Sanders didn't write this, okay? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) You're all paying attention. That's great. Because you know what? Abraham was wealthy too in his day, and he was in a good place with Lazarus. So some people eisegete, they read into it when they should be exegeting it. What is the meaning of it? We, get a few, we understand a few things. Number one, everyone is resurrected. Just like Daniel 12 says, some to eternal bliss and some to eternal torment. And that's based on standing with God. Now in the Old Testament, okay, Christ wasn't there yet. It was when we went over this in, in um, Galatians. But in the New Testament, after Christ, they have to believe in Jesus. Our sins have to be atoned for, okay? Two, the environmental conditions between the two places were vastly different. So the rich man could have used in his place some indoor plumbing and air conditioning, but that wasn't the case. Three, Jesus tells us that Moses, or Abraham tells us, Jesus through the understanding of the story, that Moses and the prophets have already warned everyone about resurrection and judgment. And this is what I've been covering with you in the Old Testament. This is kind of solidifying that. Right? In the Old Testament, through, the Moses, through Moses and the prophets, there is the understanding of resurrection and there is understanding of judgment. And four, even when the resurrection of Jesus took place, now this is before it happened, that many hearts would still be hardened. We know that. We saw that in the first century and we see that today. Now, understand this, that there's more to the story. When, and this, is, this would take in... Uh, Isaiah 61, uh, Ephesians 4, you take a bunch of scriptures together, and when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, at one point he went and he freed those people in Hades in the good side, Abraham, Lazarus, and all those Old Testament saints. He freed them, and they were able to be in God's presence. Now, they were in a good place, but they weren't in God's presence, and the reason being is because we can't be completely seeing God for all his glory in our sinful state. So that, so that part of Hades right now is empty. However, the part where the rich man and other people were, we don't know his name, they're still in that portion. Revelation 20 tells us that they will be resurrected, brought to the great white throne judgment. God will judge them based on their, their lack of standing with him, and they will be cast in the lake of fire. Pretty scary. Pastor Joe, where's the positive message this morning? <laughs> The positive message is that Christ, Christ's death frees us from that. You know, we can talk about good things and things we enjoy, but sometimes we can't appreciate it until we see the deficit first. We have to understand that this world is a harsh world. We have to understand that our flesh works against us. We have to understand that by uh, being born of the flesh, we are normally antagonistic towards God and His ways. But when we're born again of the Spirit, There's all kinds of promises that come with that. And just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, we know that the grave is not our last point anyway. And this is important because we've all gone to funerals. If we're in the emergency services uh, industry or profession, we've seen people who have perished. And before the funeral home gets them, they don't look good. 
especially if they've been there for a while when somebody finds them. Death is ugly, it's loathsome, it's disgusting. But when you look at the graveyard, next time you pass a graveyard and you see the crosses or the stars of David or the tombstones, the person, the essence of those people are not in the ground. They went somewhere. Okay? And the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us hope. That's why when we really drink it in and we really understand it, we don't fear death anymore. We don't fear the things that life's pitfalls hold for us. Like the world who has no hope because they have no Savior. You know, and I, I look at the world and I look at Brussels and I look at the terrorist attacks and people are terrified in America because they have threatened that they're coming here and they already have. A lot of things law enforcement has actually thwarted, you don't even see in the media, but eventually it's going to get through. Do we fear death? No, we don't. We don't because Christ conquered death. Death had victory until Jesus conquered death and he now has the victory and we have the victory. Amen? Amen. I preach this with passion because I believe it. I believe it. A few things. What we learn is the resurrection, based on everything I've read to you so far, and I could go on for hours with this, even before Jesus' resurrection, it's not some fly-by-night doctrine. If we take the Greek words and transliterate them into into English, um, the word could be anastasiology, or the study of the resurrection. It's chock-full in the Scripture. I want you to see a few things. Number one, the complexity of the doctrine of the resurrection. And understand that God put a lot of thought into this. And as I go through the different scriptures, I'm just going to reference what they say. You can read them on your own. You'll be blown away by the detail of the resurrection, including the change of substance between our atomic structure and this new structure that God's going to have where we will never die. Okay? Two, I want you to know how to defend your faith. You know, and I see this with young adults. I see it on social media. There's this thing now where you can have friends, and they're your friends, but they don't agree with you about the resurrection in Jesus Christ, so I've, I've seen it. Happy Zombie Jesus Day. It's a dig. It's a slight. It's funny. It's cute. And then they ask, well, why do you believe that? The answer is not because I heard it in church. Our faith is defendable, it's articulable, it's experiential, and it's evidential. And a whole lot of other things. You just got to be able to find it. And then go to, I've gone to plenty extra biblical sources, and constantly I'm reading about archaeology and how it keeps reinforcing what the Bible said, but people didn't believe because it was some made up fantasy town in the Bible. And then they find the remnants and the relics and the stamps and the names, and they go, Yeah, yeah, the Bible's right. Can you say that again? It's on page 20. (laughs) So you know how it goes. And three, I also want to encourage you to go deeper into your relationship with the Lord and live daily for Him. I was jazzed about coming up and telling you about the resurrected Christ, but I'm jazzed every day about the resurrected Christ. And I want you to catch that. And, and I'm not cutting on somebody who just comes once a year, but you're missing out on so much. You're, you're shorting yourself, you know, and, and I don't want to see that for you. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us the signs of the resurrection, the order in which the resurrections occur, who goes up first. Luke 20, 
Jesus debates with the Sadducees. He speaks about how marital relationships and other relationships change when we get to heaven. And that's a question people often ask me in the lobby. Well, what's this going to be like and what's that going to be like? It's in the scripture. It's fascinating. 1 Corinthians 15, which is known as the resurrection chapter, some, I think, 58 verses, it tells us the following, who witnessed the resurrection and in what order, and that 500 at once witnessed the resurrection. That's important. It wasn't just a bunch of guys and gals who were hanging out with Jesus. When he resurrected, he appeared to many, and I believe, this is just my conjecture, that the Roman persecution was so harsh that the Lord had to shore up his believers So when it swept through the Roman Empire, they wouldn't die out, but they would just multiply. Justin Martyr said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Very powerful stuff. He tells us also in 1 Corinthians 15, the importance of the resurrection and why it's non-negotiable. Listen, you don't have to come to this church if you don't like it or don't want to, but if you go to a church and they tell you, eh, It's not important that we believe in the resurrection. Run. Find another church. Because to me, that's not a church. Okay? The, um, well, okay. (laughs) This is why I have notes. I mean, I could be, okay. So four, moral implications of the resurrection. Five, the substance difference that we talked about between the resurrected body and the celestial body. Okay? The terrestrial, which is what we're living in. This body is of the earth. If, if, the, um, if somebody doesn't catch us and we're out in the field and we fall down and we're done, basically the elements that are in our body break down. They go back into the soil. They help the plants grow. The animals feast off of it. You know, sorry if you just had breakfast, but the point is that we're of the earth. The only thing that separates us from the soil and the animals and everything else is that God breathed a spirit into us. See what I'm saying? A life-giving spirit. And that's what separates us from the ecosystem. However, 1 Corinthians tells us that our bodies will be different when we're resurrected. We won't have to worry about, well, our appearance, I'm aging, how we feel, I'm aging. I, need a, I got two, two uh, 13-millimeter screws in my foot now. Pretty cool the way he did it. I like it. I love the x-rays. Um, but I'm not going to need those screws. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Some of us have stuff added. Some of us have things taken away from our bodies. It's not going to matter. It's going to be a different substance, okay? Definitely looking forward to it. I'm sure it's going to have a lot of things that we can do in those new bodies. Six, the manner in which the earthly bodies change to the resurrected bodies and how quickly. And seven, how the resurrection of Christ and, his, and the subsequent uh, resurrection of the saints give us hope and victory today. See, this is why in the first few centuries, um, emperor worship didn't affect the church. This is why in North Korea, and I'm going to read an article where, I mean, it is brutal what they do to Christians. They have public executions, and, and if you're caught with a Bible, it's almost like being caught with you know, uh, contraband. It is contraband in these countries. So Christianity has survived communism. And now we see in the Middle East, Syria and Iraq, ISIS sweeping through, and what they do to these Christians and their children, I could not even read from the pulpit. It's unconscionable. But the church is still maintaining itself. And the atheists would say, what are you people, stupid? Just convert. Save yourself and your children. It's common sense. The world just says, just convert. 
They got the sword over your head, and they do. I read all these, these accounts. The sword's over their head, the gun is to their head, and they can't. They can't deny their risen Savior because they caught it, and they lived the resurrection life. See, sometimes in Western society, Christianity can be a fad. But when you go overseas, Christianity can be a death sentence. And I suspect that if persecution came here, a lot of things would change. There'd be a lot of Christian fish being removed from back bumpers. But that's just my opinion. Let me just read this article to you. And I want to read a few... Listen, a, a lot of, I'm a hopeless teacher. A lot of what I do from here is apologetics. I, what I want you to do when you leave this place is consider how much you know about your faith. How, I mean, listen, it is a, it's, a, it's a spiritual thing. It's inside. But the Holy Spirit also wants to teach us God's Word. The Holy Spirit wants us to know God's Word. How much do we really know? How much are we playing in the world's playground and just kind of calling ourselves Christians? And this is the day that we should ask that question. Am I living the resurrected life? This article showed up in a lot of different news outlets. Beheadings, imprisonment made 2015 the worst year for Christian persecution, report finds. It says, beheadings, imprisonment, and eviction from ancestral homelands made 2015 the worst year on record for persecution of Christians, with North Korea topping a list of 10 otherwise Muslim nations as the most dangerous places for followers of the gospel, according to a new report. And I'm going to skip down. It is no longer just a Christian problem, but a global problem that must be addressed, said David Curry, Open Doors USA. The report confirms what we have seen develop in these countries, a rise in Islamic extremism that tragically targets minority religions, especially Christians, said Jay Sekulow, chief counsel of the American Center for Law and Justice. The brutality is unspeakable, with nearly one million Christians being slaughtered or displaced in the Middle East. By the way, I'm reading credible reports of ISIS soldiers defecting and going to Christian communities and say, will God forgive me? I've done horrible things. And just asking about Christianity, it's so, so powerful. The power of love is so much greater than the power of hate. Under the, final, under the family dynasty now ruled by Kim, Kim Jong-un, Christianity is seen as a Western-based mass delusion. Out of the country's estimated 300,000 Christians, nearly 70,000 are imprisoned in the Hermit Kingdom's notoriously brutal labor camps. Those Christians that are not imprisoned are forced to hide their faith even from members of their extended families. Driven by ISIS, violent reign in the north and west, Iraq was the second most dangerous place for Christians last year. The terrorist organization, which has a large presence in Iraq, Syria, and Libya, has made beheadings of Christians its bloody hallmark, even as it cleanses large swaths of the Middle East of all religious minorities. You know, I taught Revelation some time back, and I got to the point of beheadings. That's some form of execution. And it's kind of funny because people say, oh, the Bible's so archaic. People use guns and electric chairs, and they don't, nobody cuts heads off anymore. And then it's, it's interesting, several years later, I said that this was, has to make a resurgence because revelation is true, and it speaks about our future. And guess what? We are living in a place where it's becoming commonplace to do this. Just think of how sick and cold and devoid of a conscience and a spirit you have to be to do that to another human being. 
The number of Bible followers there has fallen to an estimated 275,000 from 1.5 million in 2003. Some experts in the international community believe that the Middle Eastern country could see its Christian population completely gone within five years. The dwindling numbers are due to genocide, flight, and forced conversions at the hands of ISIS jihadists. Pretty sad, isn't it? What's, what's their beef? I mean, honestly, the Christians there, they're not political. They don't get into the government. They just live in little villages. It's satanic. It's demonic. Okay? It's to try to destroy them. The resurrection was real to the people in the Old Testament. The resurrection was real to the people in the New Testament. It was real to those in the following centuries of the Roman persecutions. It's real today to those people that I talked to you about, our brothers and sisters that we'll spend all eternity with in these areas. And my question is, when does it become real to us? No, I mean really real. I mean not a fad, not it's in vogue, not because my friends are, because that's my clique. When does it become really real to us? And that's the title of today's message. The disciples didn't believe at first. The women were incredulous at first. When we read about the resurrection, which I've done many Resurrection Sundays, and the attitude and the words of Jesus' closest followers, you would say, what's with these people? But the Bible tells the truth. It doesn't paint the fairy tale that everybody was like, well, he said he would rise again because they watched him die. They watched the stone being rolled over. And in their earthly minds, they knew there was no way that they could continue believing in this until the resurrection. And then everything changed. In John's Gospel, Thomas was the last one to believe. And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, had to take his hand and take his fingers and put them in the holes. That Christ's resurrected body, the only thing that was the same as his earthly body was the fact that the marks of his love for us, the holes in the wrists, in the side where the soldier pierced him, he took Thomas's fingers and he put them in the wounds. Of course, they were closed up and Jesus was in a perfected body. And he said, Thomas was like, oh, my Lord and my God, I believe. And Jesus said, blessed are you. Or he says, because you see, you believe. But blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. Brothers and sisters, that's you and that's me. Jesus didn't take me at any point in time and put my fingers in his wounds. But I know that I know that I know that he exists. And maybe I'm too analytical and maybe I did too much research before I became a Christian because I was part of a so-called Christian denomination. But there was no power in my life. There was no resurrection power. And I lived like any other heathen down the street. But when I came to Christ, it was a, it was a quest for me. I wanted to know the truth. I got all the holy books. They're still in my library at home. Some of them in here. I wanted to know the truth. And I receive a blessing because I wasn't there when it happened, but I know him. I live with him. He's involved in my life. And he answers my prayers. I want to go to John 11, 23 through 26. This is where we're going to end for this morning. I'll give you a little context. This is a different Lazarus, by the way. Lazarus had two sisters. 
this Lazarus in this portion of Scripture. And he, he dies. And Jesus is somewhere else. And he's ministering and he's healing. And he's being delayed. The message comes, Lazarus is sick. And, La- and Jesus loved them. It was a, a personal, he loves everybody, but there was a personal relationship like he had with his disciples. You could say that they were disciples. So Jesus is on his way back and he's walking. Could Jesus have gone like this and been there immediately? Sure he could have, right? So Jesus is, is on his way back. By the time he gets to where Lazarus is, Lazarus is dead for four days and the sisters are weeping and each one of them handles it differently like everyone handles death. And Jesus is speaking to Martha and Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She was taught well. Even in her grief, she still believed this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You sitting here in Calvary Chapel Crossfields in May of 2016, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because what you believe about Christ will determine where you spend eternity. I had this, I found this picture of the empty tomb. What a glorious sight that is. And I smiled when I first saw it. But that was a place where corpses rotted. But Jesus took that stain of death and he sanitized it. He whitewashed it. And he made it a beautiful place of hope. Jesus took death and turned death on its ear. I encourage you, if you haven't seen it yet, to see the movie Risen. It, it gives a picture of, you know, it's someone's interpretation. There's a lot of biblical ideas. It's one of the few Hollywood movies made about the Bible that I actually enjoy. There were some things that, you know, was there a Roman centurion following them around? Probably not. But it gave you a picture of what happened after Christ's death from the government's perspective. Now, you can take the Bible and put it aside. You can take your encyclopedia and you can look up what the political situation was in Judea at the time of Christ. You had the Roman government and you had the Jewish leadership that had a very tenuous relationship. But together, if they could join forces, they could they can control the masses. I mean, there wasn't a middle class like we see in America. And even today, there's a lot of places where there is no middle class. You're either wealthy You have power or you have nothing. And you can see both sides trying their best, even working with each other, to try to dispel this idea of a risen Savior. And I'm going to tell you something. They were hunting, and it's it's an amazing thing. And you can see some of the things that are said in Scripture by some of these uh, actual people, historical figures, and it's, it's, it's amazing. And the, the power of the Roman government, they had all the money, all the resources, all the soldiers all the investigators, and they still couldn't stop this idea. And when they started killing Christians, you would think that if it was a fake, somebody would have stood up and said, listen, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. It was a big joke. You know, get them, but spare me and my family. Not one person did that because they knew that Christ rose from the dead. Why did he rise from the dead? Number one, because he said he would, and God keeps all of his promises. Why did he rise from the dead? Because he fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, which we covered. 
Three, because it confirmed his deity and the fact that he had the power over death and because of that could make promises about the afterlife to you and me. I mean, aside from the transfiguration where his glory shone throughout his skin and the miracles that he did, he looked like he took the form of a man. He bled, he slept, he ate. So some would say, whatever, there's a lot of Messiah figures, and there were back then, do a little research on that, and they were all crushed. They were all crushed. But he made good on his promises. And four, why did he die and rise again? So that we could live the resurrected life here on earth. Let me ask you a question. Let me make this personal. And sometimes people come to a service like this and they, they disassociate themselves. I want to hear something that uplifts me. I want to hear about Jesus. But here I'm going to put it back on you. What did you come here with this morning? What burdens did you carry? What's on your mind? What are you struggling with? We either believe that our God can handle it and everything, or he's inept and incompetent. If he can fix some people's problems, can he not fix everyone's? And it doesn't mean it's always going to be to our liking, but it means that he's going to listen to us. He's going to hear our prayers. He's going to work with us. Behind the nice clothes and the hair done up, some of you are struggling, but I'm here to tell you that God loves you and that he can help you. And if nothing else, sometimes when we go through a trial, it's nice not to go through it alone. It's nice to go through it with somebody else. And I'm always running into people who think, Pastor, this isn't for me. You don't know what was done to me. You don't know what I did. I cannot receive God's love. And that is so not true. Resurrection Sunday is not about the bunny. It's about the lamb. When John the Baptist saw him coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I can imagine some interpreting that. He knew exactly what he was saying before Jesus did anything. I urge you, please don't leave this place without being part of the message. Don't leave this place not thinking that God can't do for you. Don't leave this place thinking that From this point on, I can't have a relationship. Yes, you can. You absolutely can. So my question to you, and I leave it with you, is when does it become real to you, the resurrection? I mean, when does it really become real to you? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.